Hello, I'm Dr. Scott Wadier. And I'm Tommy Welling, and you're listening to the Fasting for Life podcast. This podcast is about using fasting as a tool to regain your health, achieve ultimate wellness, and live the life you truly deserve. Each episode is a short conversation on a single topic with immediate actionable steps. We cover everything from fat loss and health and wellness to the science of lifestyle design. We started Fasting for Life because of how fasting has transformed our lives, and we hope to share the tools that we have learned along the way. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Fasting for Life podcast. My name is Dr. Scott Water, and I'm here, as always, I'm a good friend and colleague, Tommy Welling. Good afternoon to you, sir. Hey, Scott. How are you? Doing fantastic, my friend. Excited for today's conversation. We're going to be diving in to a little bit different of an article that we've seen, a couple of markers that we've never talked about before. And it's a recent article that was published in April of 2023, so just a couple of months back. And it is intermittent fasting plus early time-restricted eating versus calorie restriction and standard care in adults, this is the part that I love, at risk of type 2 diabetes, a randomized control trial. So Mm. it's going to be an exciting conversation. We're going to talk about some actionable things and some basic things that you can do to put into your day-to-day efforts when it comes to fasting and adopting a fasting lifestyle. If you are new to the podcast, welcome in and thank you for giving us a shot. If you want to learn more about Tommy, you want to learn more about me, you want to learn more about how fasting has transformed our lives, you can head back to episode one and give it a listen. We asked for a little bit of grace because that was a long time ago, 189, 90 episodes and counting, rapidly approaching 3 million downloads. So if you are new, you're joining a movement with some momentum. And if you're an OG, someone that's been listening or part of the Fasting for Life fam for a while now, we appreciate you continuing to listen and like and share, subscribe, review, all of those things that I don't fully understand. But when you do, that tells the podcast world that we are bringing value to the listeners each and every week. And we're just appreciative for you being here with us. So Tommy, as we hop into this article, Intermittent Fasting, plus early time restricted eating versus calorie restriction. The biggest thing that stood out, we had to double and triple and quadruple check our records to be like, wait a minute, have we done this one before? Because we've, by (laughs) now, we've talked a lot about time restricted eating and intermittent fasting and diabetes and calorie restriction, restriction, right? Yeah. So we're the mediators standing in between the, well, calories matter, no insulin matters, no hormones matter, macros matter, right? Yeah. Genetics matter. My food choices matter. Right. Yeah. We're typically swatting all of that stuff away. I like to think that we have a moderate approach when it comes to adapting a fasting lifestyle, right? We could all Angus Barbieriot. And as I said in the coaching (laughs) group, don't worry, I'll I'll, I'll tell you what that means in a second. Inside of one of our coaching calls recently where I was like, listen, if the scale's not moving, then just fast. Just fast. If you stopped eating today and didn't eat for a week, what's the scale going to do? Well, yeah, it's going to move. Right. But is that a long-term sustainable plan? No. Angus Barbieri, longest recorded fast in history, 300 and... 82 days? I 82 days. Lost 272 or four pounds. Completely transformed his life. Extended his life. And this was way back in the day when before black and white TV. Okay? Mm. Fasting's been around for a while is my point. So we had to think, man, have we talked about this article before? And we didn't because the thing that stood out to me first and foremost was at risk. So these folks were at risk. This was me years before and leading up to when I found fasting standing in your kitchen. I had done some fasting, but I didn't do the fasting that you were doing and definitely didn't do the fasting that we now recommend or do and talk about on this podcast. Yeah, true. 
because the thing for us was we need to regain our health. My numbers were off. I was feeling like crap. I had insulin resistance. Didn't know even know what that was. Didn't even know that was a blood test you could order. My blood pressure was slightly elevated. Elevated liver enzymes are slightly off. Couldn't really ever get the midsection to shrink. Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, you must not have been that compliant. No, I was tracking and weighing and hiring world-renowned nutritionists here locally in Houston mm-hmm. and having multiple degrees between my wife and I. Just couldn't figure it out. Functional medicine testing, FDNs, you name it. And then came into the yeah, and then came into the picture. Well, your blood sugar is normal, but have we looked upstream? Have we looked at insulin? And the answer was no. So I love this study because it talks about the at-risk group. And right now, yeah, that is the silent epidemic. The obesity epidemic is real. It's growing literally and figuratively. It is directly linked to increased loss of life, metabolic issues, and cardiovascular and heart disease problems. The cost of care for in- for diabetes right now is incredibly high. And we want you to know that you have a choice. But the at-risk population, which depending on where you look, can be anywhere from 80 to 100 million Americans, Hmm. never mind worldwide. So I love that this study is going to look at fasting and it's kind of fasting. We'll talk about that in just a second. (laughs) Sporadic fasting. Yeah, could be better fasting. Could be better fasting. Fasting with room for improvement. There you go. Compared to calorie restriction, which is just Google calorie restriction. You guys have all done it. Here's your caloric deficit. Go hit your calories, track your macros, weigh your food, work, eat less, move more. Yeah. Here's so how quickly you're going to lose the weight. That's why I love this to begin with is because it's talking about the at-risk category. And that's the largest category of people that are probably making an effort to get healthier and lose the weight for good. Yeah. You know, what's also interesting whenever we look at these, typically the studies that, that look at intermittent fasting versus caloric restriction, they don't tend to have just sweeping differences in the amount of weight that was lost in the maybe 60 or maybe 90 days, or even in this study, like over the six month period. But it gets very interesting when the studies actually look at something deeper, something like you alluded to, something upstream or something a little bit, a few layers deep, like insulin levels or like actual blood glucose levels or elevation of blood glucose over time. How long did it stay high? Which that's gonna directly affect things like an A1C test later on and other things that are even more important that we're gonna talk about as well. And that's where the rubber really meets the road because whether or not your weight is actually changing over time, or if you hit your forever number yet, or whatever the case may be as far as weight, there's a whole lot of other things that are going on under the hood that are much better predictors of long-term health outcomes and are going to matter at least just as much as that weight, if not more, probably more if we're, if we're actually you know aimed in the right direction, like looking at the right metrics. They even say in here, they go through so many studies. And they look at meta-analysis compared IF to CR, like you just mentioned. Weight loss is typically the main metric. They find a lot of similarities between the time-restricted feeding groups and the calorie restriction groups. Yeah. They found only two trials that have been powered to assess insulin sensitivity, which they talk about, and no studies have been powered for postprandial assessments of blood sugar. And that's what we're going to talk about today, which is the second thing that attracted us to the study. Yeah. Which is the time that you have elevated blood sugar in your body. Yeah. After right. You eat, after you eat. Yeah, yeah. Which means the elevated insulin, the amount of time that insulin is elevated in your body. So 
in a lot of the other studies, and we've talked about probably all of them. I remember the one back in January when we dropped the blueprint to fasting for fat loss. It was six and four hour, four, six and 10 hour eating windows, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at differences and a lot of the similarities were the same in weight loss, but the fat-free mass was better. The insulin resistance or the insulin sensitivity number was better. The blood pressure numbers yeah. were better. The waist circumference was better typically right. in the fasting groups. And that's what they found here as well. But this concept and visually, I want you to think about it. Like if you go back to geometry or trigonometry class, sine waves and the mm -hmm. X, Y axes in calculus and algebra, right? So <laughs> a lot of fun. Don't worry. There's no math test at the end of today because I would fail it still. But that time or that area, like if you colored it in under those curves that you're envisioning, mm, like the sine yeah. wave, right? Yeah. Or a bell curve is a more cleaner way to think about this, right? You've seen a bell curve, right? Yeah. That time under the curve is when you eat, your body has a natural response to elevate blood sugar. That's fine. What we want is to decrease the amount of area under that curve over long time periods, over lifespans. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it because you can decrease that area under the curve by either dropping the height of the peak of the elevation of your blood sugar or decreasing the amount of time, like that would be the x-axis, if you decrease the amount of time that it takes for it to return back to right. normal levels, or you could potentially, you know, do both, but either one of those things is going to reduce the area under the curve. And overall, that's going to mean, you know, for example, lower HbA1c, which is your, your rolling moving average of uh, 90 days worth of blood sugar markers. So just one way to think about it. So the area under the curve in this study decreased more in the fasting group. And we're gonna unpack it in just a second, but I wanna just hit on this a little bit more, mm -hmm. is in a normal population, non-diabetic, right? Non-pre-diabetic, yeah. you wanna eat and see a 30 to 40 point blood sugar spike, and then it returned to normal or baseline within two to three hours. For diabetics, okay. that number can be as high as 180 post-meal within two to three hours. Mm. I'd like to see it definitely under that 140 mark, but that's just keeping the numbers between the field goal posts, so to speak. So you're going to have an elevated time when you have excess blood sugar floating around in your bloodstream. That's damaging. It's damaging to optic nerves. It's damaging to tissues and muscles. It's damaging to important organs and organ systems. Yeah, the liver. The liver specifically. We know that having elevated blood sugar is not bad. It's sometimes fatal if not caught when your blood sugar gets too high. I had a friend who was diagnosed as type 1 diabetes way back in the day. And when he went to, he drove himself to the emergency room, his blood sugar was 800. Wow. And they looked at him and they're like, how are you standing here? They were like, what? He didn't know, right? So thankfully he made it. And now he's been managing ever since and he's doing great. And actually he's been fasting a little bit too, which is fantastic. And he's noticed wow. that he's had been able to reduce his insulin as a type Excellent. one. Because his area under the curve is better. Because right? his area under the curve, exactly. Yeah. So the results here were, were, were pretty, I mean, two and a half times better. So yeah. just imagine that curve being that area under the curve, color it in visually, right? In your mind, that area under the curve being two and a half times less, which means two and a half times less insulin being elevated, which means less insulin resistance, which means less potential for cardiometabolic issues and comorbidities and diagnoses and medications and all mm. of the factors that come along with this insulin resistance component and insulin resistance can be in very distant terms synonymous with weight loss resistance. If your body is sure. resistant to losing the weight, 
I love that there's a couple of other metrics here, Tommy, that we'll get to in just a second that we have never talked about before. And those things also were needle movers in the secondary outcomes of the study. Yeah. And like, because when you get a better area under the curve for glucose, it leads right in to your pancreas and your liver, which are going to make a determination on what else needs to happen biochemically. And what you're going to see is you're going to see less of an insulin response, which is a really, really good thing because the higher our insulin response, the higher our risk for cardiometabolic disease, but also the more likely it is that we go into fat storage mode which we generally speaking do not want. So this study also showed an improvement, a greater improvement in the time-restricted eating group for insulin area under right. the curve as well, which we don't see studied very often. And then that led directly to a decrease in the non-esterified fatty acid area under the curve as well, right? Yeah, and the non-esterified fatty acids, this is something we haven't talked about as a biomarker yet, but they've been known to mediate many adverse metabolic effects, most notably, ding, 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 insulin resistance. So elevated NIFAs in obesity are thought to arise from an increased adipose tissue mass. So you have this metabolically mm -hmm. active, we talked about this multiple times, visceral fat. You have this metabolically active tissue. It's your fat. Your fat is causing you to continue to be fat and struggle with losing the weight, right? Yeah. It's like, just like, I picture it like little fat cells with devil ears on it, right? It's argued that the process of fatty acid mobilization from adipose tissue is normally suppressed by insulin itself becomes insulin resistant. Mm. So thus lipolysis or the breakdown of fat is actually further increased. It's hindered, potentially leading to a vicious cycle where you want to see these NIFAs to be decreased over time. And NIFA and obesity insulin resistance, that relationship, right, is still being investigated. But for sure, mm. we know that decreased NIFA is a good thing. And yeah. this study is the first one that we've come across to actually show that with, again, room for improvement fasting, right? Yeah, <laughs> because you, you basically, you look at all of these curves and they all kind of like, you know, you have a, you have a spike after a meal and then it comes down, but it, it all matters how quickly things are working, how efficiently they're working to bring these spikes down after the meal. Like this is a really good pulse on, on how efficiently the system is, is working. And when we get into like how these studies or how this study particularly was, was designed for the fasting, it was definitely very on and off. And so I love the fact that there was basically an equal improvement in weight for both of these groups, but then you had the area under the curve substantially improving for the time-restricted eating group. And this, this time-restricted eating was, was just, okay, one day we're going to have 30% of our calories coming in between 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. And then we're going to go into a 20-hour fast going into the next day. So they're basically saying they're doing non-consecutive days, so like three days a week doing a 20-hour fast. So every other day, fairly inconsistent because those other days were just kind of ad libitum, you know, feasting. They weren't even putting, you know, much of a, a restriction Zero boundaries. at all there. Yeah. So you could essentially be, Buffets you know, phase open. Yeah, you could you could definitely be undoing some, you know, caloric restriction or some insulin, you know, sensitivity improvement from day to day. But it turns out over the six months, they weren't undoing all of that. They were making some powerful progress, even though they were kind of on the same track as far as weight loss. 
But this reminds me of like almost, you know, that the term that we don't really like very much, which is skinny fat. Because if you could, you could be decreasing in weight, but at the same time, if, if your biomarkers aren't improving or your insulin resistance is, is getting worse or maybe staying the same rather than improving, I'd rather have the, the weight loss with the, you know, biomarker improvement, obviously. You know, so if there's a way to Hell, do Hell, I'd that, rather have the scale stay the same like in all the other, re a lot of the research yeah. we've, we've notified and the biomarkers improve. Right. Absolutely. Give me the same weight, but better blood chemistry all day. Cause that, I mean, that's going to be a better quality of life, better longevity for sure. Eventually the scale will start to move as well. So this fasting window, right? So non-consecutive days of doing a 20 hour mm -hmm. fast. One thing I did like, and this is something we've been leaning towards more recently is that they put it in the morning. So they, yeah, the, yeah. the, the consumption of the food was earlier in their eating window between eight and 12. Love that. Yep. A very common fasting mistake is picking one fasting window in the evening and sticking with that, expecting that to be your golden egg, the goose that laid the golden egg, right? Like I butchered that analogy. You know what I'm trying to say. The magic <laughs> Especially pill. when it's, it's hard to close that evening window sometimes, too, right, especially right. if you have a lot of bad habits. So I like that they did that. And I like that they were studying time restricted versus calorie restriction. They had a good control group and they were looking at it in at-risk population and looking at cardiometabolic health outcomes, right? So mm -hmm. all positive things. I just can't believe the, the results were that good in non-consecutive, like just, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I, I did some fasting early on very poorly and I don't know if I would have gotten these results following this strategy, right? Maybe you were and you, you didn't even but, notice true, it, but true, because, true, true. Be, right? Because you didn't have the feedback. Maybe looking at the scale, it was like, well, this obviously isn't working. Right. Maybe slowly it was making some progress that you were unaware of too. So the important outcome is the area under the curve decreased more in the time-restricted eating group. The insulin decreased in the time-restricted feeding group and with the area under the curve, right? They go hand in mm -hmm. hand. Yeah. The non-esterified fatty acids, the NEFIS were lower than in the control group, right? And yeah. then cardiovascular risk factors for liver health, fasting triglycerides improved, right? And there's this movement right now where LDL is labeled the bad cholesterol. LDL, bad yeah. cholesterol, right? Well, not really alone in its own singular, you know, if you're just looking at LDL as a marker that's going to be related to cardiovascular issues, heart disease and stroke, et cetera, alone, it's not bad. It's bad when you have elevated triglycerides. So guess what? Mm. The triglycerides in this could be improved fasting strategy that got great results with area under the curve for blood sugar and insulin and NEFAs, right? Also showed decreased triglycerides, which means, okay, wow. now we're starting to move the needle on metrics like, cause that triglyceride to HDL ratio, much more important and lower triglycerides if you do have slightly elevated LDL. The last one that was really cool that we had not spoken about yet on this podcast is a marker of liver function and it's beta hexosaminidase. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff that we found uncovering the connections here in the research, Tommy, in terms of other diseases was really powerful. Yeah, it really was because I had never heard of, of beta hexosaminidase as like, right. as a marker. Can you say that, that three times fast? <laughs> right. No, I'm not even going to try. I got, I got beta one. So, <laughs> but you know, just the Sorry, fact that everybody's ears, apologies. right? Yeah, no, it's, it's been shown it's elevated in people with diabetes, with Alzheimer's disease, as well as other age related diseases. But you know, like you said, it's a clinical marker of liver health, which we know is, is very important in prediabetes in, in metabolic uh, function in healthy in metabolic, metabolic flexibility. Exactly. Yeah.
Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second and tell you just an incredible story about an amazing company that we've come across recently. Um, and now they are a sponsor of our show. It's airdoctorpro.com. You can head to the website, use a promo code uh, fasting for life to receive up to $300 off. But most importantly, uh, my little guy, my two year old, has not slept consistently through the night uh, since he was born. We have tried everything you can imagine. He is our third child. And we're just like, what is happening? So we have gone to great lengths, time, money, and effort to figure out um, how we can help him sleep. And uh, the reality is uh, we were pretty much just resigned to the fact that this is how it's going to be until we put the Air Doctor Pro in his room. And I am not joking when I tell you the first night that we put it in his room, he slept through the night. The second night, slept through the night. Now we're up to 35 plus days that he has slept through the night. He has only woken up two times rather than two, three times a night, two times in the last 35 days and counting. And we are just so incredibly grateful. The reality is uh, we had a feeling that it was something that we were missing. And the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air these days. In some cases, up to a hundred times more. We spend 90% of our time indoors and we take 20,000 breaths a day. So what's the solution? An air purifier, a cut above the rest. I'm not going to lie. We have tried others. We've tried other HEPA filters. We've tried other air filters. We have spent the money and they have not done the results that Air Doctor did in literally the first day that we put it in his room. They filter out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants. That includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mite, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. So I don't know what it was that was keeping them up, but it is now gone. So Air Doctor comes with a 30-day Breathe Easy money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com. Use promo code FASTINGFORLIFE to receive up to $300 off air purifiers. An exclusive listener um, offer for you as well. You'll receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. That's exclusive to you, the podcast listener, now hearing this in real time. Lock this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code fasting for life. You guys know that we are very particular with who we partner with. And if it wasn't for this incredible company and this, the incredible results that we've seen, I would not be encouraging you to head to the website and take advantage of the fasting for life promo code. So if you support our sponsors, you are ultimately supporting us. We are grateful for you listening in and now back to today's episode. Yeah, it's huge. And we need all the liver function we can get if we're looking to lose weight as well, because the liver is going to be your biochemical powerhouse is going to determine, am I in sugar burning mode? Am I in fat burning mode? You know, what do my blood markers actually look like? So the cool thing about that factor, that biomarker was that we saw an over two and a half times improvement in the time restricted eating group versus the calorie restriction group in improvements in beta hexosaminidase at six months out even though the weight loss was the same. So once again, just a huge, massive improvement in an important marker when you couldn't tell that that was happening on the scale here. But Tommy, the scale didn't move. <laughs> I don't care. I don't Thank care. You. Throw it out. Throw Thank it out. Thank you. Yeah, yeah right? So I know we're being a little cheeky marker. here, yeah. but this is part of what it is that we do. Like you can't do the same thing as everybody else and expect the results to be different. And yeah. For me, this really hits home with the, my blood sugar numbers were still within normal range. My fasting insulin was in the low 20s. It's now under seven. Big difference. Wow. 
right? Nice. Years, yeah, years of failing forward. But that increased glucose metabolism is what we want. We want that flexibility to be able to enjoy life, eat some of the foods we love, have the date nights and the celebrations and the and not have to worry about the dang scale all the time. And that's why we feel fasting is so powerful. So we love this study. It talks about a couple of needle movers in terms of metabolic health with NIFAs and, and beta hexosaminidase and area under the curves and things that we really haven't talked about before. But again, I just wanna highlight that there were changes in the other metrics like fat-free mass and all that, and that were very similar to caloric restriction. Yeah. But this was done with three non-consecutive 20-hour fast days and completely no guidance <laughs> on the other days in question. On what to eat, yeah. <laughs> Just normal, habitual lifestyle stuff. So yeah. I really like that they did follow-ups here, and there were a lot of similarities in the follow-ups at 12 months. But one thing that did stand out to me is that the calorie restriction group actually showed a better adherence at 18 months. Mm. And what I find interesting about that is my gut feeling on that is because initially they both were like, all right, 97% of time restricted eating at 12 months and 97% of calorie restriction. We're like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this, right? I've yeah. seen some weight loss. Yeah. The TRE guys didn't know that they were like making all these other changes as well, yeah. guys and gals. But the farther away you get from baseline to that 18 month mark, I just believe is that calorie restriction is so much more I don't want to say mainstream, but like you've got your MyFitnessPals and your apps and mm. people are on diets, off diets. It, it fits more of that diet culture where this, sure. I don't want to call it flippant, but this very, just pick a couple of days a week and do a 20 hour fast and then the rest of the time do whatever you want, isn't really strategic for long-term success. Mm. And that's why we, we really talk about finding fasting schedules and routines that fit your life, fit your lifestyle, fit your calendar, fit your date nights and celebrations and travel and vacation, yeah. but put some structure to it the rest of the time. Mm, good point. That way it always feels like you're more or less on track or yeah. you're you're in a fasting lifestyle at that point. It's easy to to see yourself. Your self-image kind of changes to a to adjust like I am a faster, not just like, oh yeah, I'm using fasting right now as my diet plan. You know, that that, that was the difference that I, I kind of heard right there. Because if if you told me like, oh, just do whatever you want, you know, every other day. And then and then the one day there was there was basically just, you know, kind of like one or two things that I needed to do. And I wasn't seeing the scale move. I mean, it would really feel like, well, why am I why am I even thinking about it on the on the quote unquote on days? Like, like prove it, prove that it's it's worth doing, you know? But I mean, the, the proof is in, in the data here, but I do like having a little bit more structure to it because even if you're just, you know, maintaining the weight loss that you've had or you're, you're at a good healthy weight and, you know, you want to improve some biomarkers or, or whatever it might be, just finding something that, that is part of your fasting schedule. Like maybe it's an 18, six or maybe it's more like the warrior, like 20 slash four, but you're able to, to relatively like, commit to it on on most days it doesn't have to be a hundred percent right a hundred percent of the days but if you have something as like a, a baseline or kind of a, a fallback this is what i'm usually doing most of the time you've kind of started you know putting the framework for your fasting lifestyle you know right there right so two more things so that was one negative where i was like oh that was interesting about the the ability to stick to it i just think you need a little bit more structure and intention with your fasting efforts right yeah grab the fasting 
the blueprint to fasting for fat loss is in the show notes. We'll give you some structure, give you some ideas. I did notice that cardiovascular risk too, there was a better systolic blood pressure in the time-restricted eating. That's something that we hear very often. And the one more thing, so so we don't get accused of cherry picking, right? It's like, oh, you guys are only hitting the, all the good stuff, right? Well, no, there's some limitations with the TRE group, but this is something that we hear quite often and we talk all the time about is prioritizing protein because when mm -hmm. they looked at physical activity and self-reported dietary intake, the self-reported energy intake was modestly lower in the TRE versus the calorie restriction at month two. And protein mm -hmm. and fiber intakes were also lower. And this is one of those things. So if they were told to only eat 30% of your intake, how many people are just going to eat like a steak? Yeah, true. Like a piece of meat. Yeah, usually your default would just be to shrink the meal. Like yeah. Proportionally. You know, yeah. Right. Put it, honey, I shrunk the kids. Put it in the machine. Zoom. Right. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. Smaller. Right. So. Right. We, we really talk a lot about this too, is that, okay, you are going to get a better caloric burn, more blood sugar stability and satiety from a higher protein meal. And of course, it's better for lean muscle production and retaining that lean muscle tissue. So sure, yeah. just a couple of things I was like, oh, you know what? That's really interesting that they mentioned that. And that's something that we see, you know, inside of a lot of, inside of our challenges, inside of the coaching group as well. So yeah, well, hold on. what I heard that, what I heard there was, if I'm going from 100% of my caloric needs down to a 30%, then rather than shrinking all of the, the portions of my plate equally, prioritizing that protein, putting that protein as like the first big checkbox. And, you know, maybe if I was only doing 30% one day, maybe 75% of that would be protein, or maybe it'd be more, more or less like 50, 50 between fat and protein. And then I'd leave the carbs behind, you know, for, for that day and really like increase the efficiency and the burn and my satiety when only, you know, a, a fraction of my calories are coming in that day. That's what I would personally do. Yeah. And I, I just think back to when I was, man, my, my labs are ticking up. My, my liver enzymes are slightly off. My blood sugar was still within yes. normal. I'm yeah. sitting there. I did some keto and intermittent fasting. Right. And then that mm -hmm. stopped working and I was doing RP strength templates and tracking and then hired the nutritionist. And I was just like, man, you know what the biggest thing that I was missing, which is why one of the things that we really, that stood out to us about the study, the fasting windows that could be improved upon, right. Was consistency. I just wasn't being consistent enough with my efforts. So if you're over here going, ah, oh, fasting, I can never do that. Then great, go do calorie restriction and, and lose the weight, but do something, right? Yeah, yeah. We just find that fasting also taps into those additional benefits as well as for me, it was hunger hormones and relationship with food and oh, yeah. snacking and all that stuff yep. too. So I just really like this study. I love the outcomes, of course. Study design was pretty good overall. And it's it's something, you know, in terms of the NIFAs and the hexosaminidase that we have never really talked about before. But again, just other things. Your body's inherently smart. Fasting's been around for forever since the dawn of time. So why not lean on something that is tried and true? Well, you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to get some repetitions. And that's why we have the challenges and the blueprint and the resources and this podcast. We really want you to take one or two things away and just go now, take a different action, put a little more planning into your mealtime. If you're thinking, oh, I'll just start tomorrow, oh, I'll just start over the weekend. No, a randomized haphazard 24 hour fast three times a week is better than nothing. One 24 okay. hour, 24, one 20 dash four hour yeah, it was a 20 fast, hour fast, one 20 hour fast is better than no fast. Start now, Absolutely. start today. You have the opportunity to just make a decision in the moment and you are going to be getting all of these benefits. It's really, really cool. Yeah, the area under the curve study matters. Really, 
yeah, it, what it highlights to me is the small decisions matter because it's the area under the curve. It's those time between the fast. It's those times between your meals when your numbers, your average numbers are being calculated right in during all those times when you're not even thinking about it. Between right. when you're sleeping, before you wake up, your, your fasting glucose, this time between the meals. So if you don't have your fasting timer set right now, set it. If it's mealtime right now, make one better food decision right now during this mealtime and then set your next fasting timer because each one of those decisions is going to add up to small improvements that are going to add up over time. So absolutely get started right now. Yep. You're looking for more support. You can head to the show notes, grab the blueprint fasting for fat loss, free resource, 20 pages. We we're pretty biased, but we think it's pretty good. And then you can also head to the fasting for life community. It is our private Facebook group of like-minded fellow fasters where we break the fasting Rule number one and number two, which is don't talk about fasting and don't talk about fasting because that's all we do in that group is talk about fasting. So come on in. The water's warm. Hope to see you on the inside. Tommy, as always, thanks for the conversation. and We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye. So you've heard today's episode and you may be wondering, where do I start? Head on over to thefastingforlife.com and sign up for our newsletter where you'll receive fasting tips and strategies to maximize results and fit fasting into your day-to-day -day life. While you're there, download your free Fast Start Guide to get started today. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to leave us a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Fasting for Life.